This is Backstory, the show that brings three centuries of history to bear on a single topic. I'm Peter Ronoff, the 18th century guy. I'm Ed Ayers, the 19th century guy. And I'm Brian Bellow, 20th century guy. Today on the show, we're marking the 150th anniversary of the Civil War's beginnings with an in-depth look at the pivotal six months before the fighting started. In the first part of the show, Ed and Peter were explaining how utterly different the election of Abraham Lincoln looked in the South to the way it looked to abolitionists in the North. Now, we should be careful to point out that the North and the South were hardly monolithic entities at this time. Very few Northerners were committed abolitionists. In fact, Northerners were more likely to think that slavery kept black people in their places. And in the South, just because practically everybody hated Lincoln, that didn't mean that they were ready to walk out of the Union. According to Civil War historian William Freeling, in fact, that was very much a minority position in December 1860. So the problem for the minority of secessionists is to figure out how they can get the majority out. And the thing they must above all else avoid is a Southern Convention. Because in a Southern convention to decide the issue of secession, they're going to lose. What they have to do is do it state by state. Uh, And when enough states seceded, then there would be enormous pressure on the majority to reconsider its position. South Carolina is where the secessionists make their first stand. Three days after the election, it announces it will hold a convention to debate secession. And a few weeks later, that convention votes unanimously to leave the union. University of Virginia historian Elizabeth Varon says that to understand why South Carolina was the first to go, we need to understand this demographic fact. South Carolina is one of the two southern states on the eve of the war that has an African-American majority, 59 percent of the population. What this means as a practical matter is not that blacks have any voice in the politics of the state. Of course, they don't. This is a slave population. But it does signify a sort of overweening dependence on slavery. So Uh, South Carolina has long been at the forefront of the defense of the institution. In fact, South Carolina had been at the forefront of that effort ever since the 1830s. Back then, South Carolina said, when there is a law that directly contradicts the interest of a state, it may be nullified, rendered null and void. And South Carolina staked a lot of that back in 1830 and 31. It lost. President Jackson called their bluff. But the idea that the federal government should not be able to endanger the rights of slaveholders and the security of white people in a predominantly black state endured, and it came up again here in the secession crisis. My father was a South Carolina nullifier, governor of the state at the time of the nullification row, so I was of necessity a rebel born. This is a passage from the diary of Mary Chestnut, one of the most famous documents of the American Civil War. In addition to being the daughter of a former governor, Mary Chestnut was also the wife of James Chestnut, the first U.S. senator to quit the Senate after the 1860 election. I remember feeling a nervous dread and horror of this break with so great a power as the United States. But I was ready and willing. South Carolina had been so rampant for years. Come what would... I wanted them to fight and stop talking. So I was a seceder, but I dreaded the future. 
Americans, Southerners included, had long been encouraged to dread disunion and indeed to imagine it as the worst possible thing that could befall their country. Historian Elizabeth Barron. And this image of disunion as something that was just a cataclysmic, apocalyptic, tragic outcome had a great deal of political utility because invariably when anyone in the days of the early antebellum period proposed something radical, they were accused of wanting disunion, of fomenting disunion, of opening this Pandora's box. So, for example, when abolitionists came along and proposed the immediate emancipation of the slaves, those who supported the slave system said, ah, you're disunionist. You want to alienate North from South and prompt this kind of terrible, unwinnable uh, war. And women's rights advocates were accused of the same thing. So people like Chestnut, had to unlearn this long-standing set of assumptions to embrace secession. They had to unlearn the idea that disunion was just a dreadful and horrific prospect. By the winter of 1860, that lesson was well on its way to being unlearned. In fact, one of the most famous quotes from this period is from Mary Chestnut's husband, the U.S. Senator, or rather ex-Senator. A few days after South Carolina seceded, he reportedly said this to a fellow South Carolinian who was nervous about the future. There will be no war. It'll all be arranged. I will drink all the blood shed in the war. The secessionists had the sort of rose-colored view of what secession would mean. Some of them thought the North would quail in the face of this secession movement and either sort of let the South go after a sort of brief dust-up or give the South what it wanted. Interestingly, it was the Unionists in the South who said, yes, secession is going to bring a war, but it's going to bring a war we can't win. And one thing we would need to pause to point out, I think, is that secession was not the only way to protect slavery. And that if people oppose secession, and by people I mean the slaveholders of the South, right. does not mean that they were somehow less committed to slavery than secessionists That's were. That's such an important point. The, the, the debate between unionists and secessionists in the South is not a, uh, a debate over slavery per se. It's a debate about how best to protect slavery, whether slavery, which has thrived in the Union, as the unionists say, will continue to thrive in the Union, or whether slavery is in mortal danger unless the South secedes. And Unionists are absolutely saying the surest way to destroy slavery is to bring a federal army down here. Absolutely. Once again, we see how the election of Lincoln meant so many different things to so many different people, even people who were supposedly on the same side. But Varen told me that in many ways, the secession debate was about a lot more than politics. One of the things the secessionists do so well in those critical months in which this all has been debated is tap a kind of martial fervor, particularly among men, particularly among young men, the idea that this war can not only be short and sweet, but it can be fun. It can be a break from the ho-hum of everyday life. It can be a field in which men can win honor and glory and the hearts of women and all the rest. And, and there's a lot of young men in the South who are eager to sort of recapture the glories of the South's early history, the time when it dominated the federal government and all the rest, who are very susceptible to this kind of argument. So as we go into secession, there's this strange amalgam of dread and exultation yes, in the exactly. South, right? right. And a, a sense, it's not that people can't imagine the terrible things that will happen. They just don't think they're going to. They just don't <laughs> think that they're going to, exactly. And I mean, this is something that that is puzzling. I, you know, uh, many people have said to me, couldn't these guys 
crunch the numbers. You know, it was obvious that the North had not only more people, but more industry and more of everything, uh, even more agricultural output. But the secessionists perceived that the South had other advantages that they believed would bring them a quick and decisive victory. That's Elizabeth Varon, a historian at the University of Virginia. We'll link to some of her work and to audio of my entire conversation with her at BackstoryRadio.org.